Hello, hello, and welcome along to the Sustainable Business Covered podcast. ED editor Luke Nichols here, and, and what an episode we have for you today. Um, and this is the, the 25th episode, uh, I think. Um, and I can honestly say this is uh, one of the episodes I'm looking forward to, to the most, actually. Um, not least of all because Matt and George are uh, actually uh, away, leaving me in the driving seat, but also because I've been able to replace them both with um, two fascinating leaders and authorities when it comes to sustainable business and tackling climate change. Um, so for this episode, we ventured up to London to the UK headquarters of the carpet tile manufacturer and, and sustainability stalwart that is um, Interface. Um, I'm sure our listeners know who Interface are for their tremendous work, pioneering work they do in the, in the world of sustainable business. Um, and so I'm joined here by Interface's Chief Sustainability Officer, Erin Mizan. Erin, hello, how are you? Hi Luke, I'm great. So excited to have you here in the London showroom and, and really excited to talk about climate. Yeah, well, uh, thank you for having us. I suppose we should describe where we are. We're in a relatively quiet office away from the main kind of areas here in the interface, interface offices. But from what I've seen, it's a very nicely set out office. We've got green wall I saw when I came in, um, very nice natural light. So yeah, a fitting location to be having a discussion about sustainability. Um, and so are you based here? Are you based in the UK or over in the US? Yeah, we're actually globally headquartered in the U.S. Um, it's an American company that started about 43 years ago, and we've got showrooms around the world. We've actually had our London showroom here in Clerkenwell for quite some time, okay. so it, it's fantastically fitted out, having just finished Clerkenwell Design Week, so mm. um, really, really great space. Mm. I'm excited to talk to you. Good, good. Well, um, and we, I suppose we have not one, but two Americans here on the show this week, because Eric, to Erin's right is... Um, Someone who I think can only be described as a bit of a man on a mission. Um, Paul Hawkin is an environmentalist, an entrepreneur, an activist, uh, and most recently an author uh, of a book which has got a spectacularly bold and eye-catching title of um, Drawdown, the most comprehensive plan ever proposed to reverse global warming. Um, Paul, welcome along to the show. How are you? I'm great. Thank you very much, Luke. It's great to be here in London. Yeah. How long, how long have you been here? I've been here since, uh, let's see, the 10th, and then I come back on the 23rd. I leave on Friday, come back. I'm here once a month. Oh, wow. Uh, and uh, I keep tweeting and sending pictures back to my wife saying, I want to move here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I love this place so oh. much. I can, I can imagine, I imagine something, you know, EVs, electric vehicles, are really just soaring in popularity uh, around the world. And I just I sometimes stand and Piccadilly or Kensington someplace and just imagine when it's EVs everywhere in London what an extraordinary drop in sound and noise yeah, and true. because it's such a beautiful city yeah, well, yeah, hopefully that will happen one day soon. Yeah. Um, fantastic. So we had the man with a plan to tackle climate change um, and a business that's really walking the walk, I guess, when it comes to taking bold climate action. So let's get started. Paul and Erin um, introduced you both to our listeners, um, but have you been introduced to each other? Do you, do you know each other, Paul? I mean, why is Interface here talking to, to, to Paul Hawking? I've been involved with Interface since 1994. Ah, okay. Uh, and I've worked extensively with them, and then ever since Aaron joined Interface, I've worked with Aaron. Uh, I was brought in by the CEO and founder, uh, CEO at that time, uh, Ray Anderson, and uh, he had been given uh, my book by a vice president, uh, Joyce Laval, and 
and that book, The College of Commerce, had been given to Joyce by her daughter, who was studying at Evergreen College, and Ray had been uh, pressed to give a speech or give a talk to the staff uh, about the environmental policy of Interface. And as he said at that time, uh, he didn't have a policy, that, or he did, and it was called compliance, compliance, compliance. And, um, and he didn't know what to say. And so he uh, read the College of Commerce. Um, he sent me a letter, which from a person, a company I did not know of at that time, and saying pretty much that he plagiarized, you know, liberally from the book. Here's his speech, and uh, thank you so much. <laughs> and, and, and proceeded in August, I think, of that year to give a talk to Interface. Wow. Saying that, in fact, um, ex really extraordinary statement saying, that in fact, that he was a thief and a robber, basically that the company was stealing the future. That's amazing. And that it was going to change, and that it did. And he was an extraordinary man, extraordinary leader, and he just, he had, from his point of view, kind of a road to Damascus experience mm. in reading the book. He calls it a spirit in his chest, but I prefer the biblical version. And, um, <laughs> And from that time, the interface not only changed and transformed, but it became really the world leader in sustainability on a corporate level. Um, he became the um, co-chair of the President's uh, Commission on Sustainable Development mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, under President Clinton and Vice President Gore. Um, and as I said, from being just, not just, but just you know, another corporate founder, CEO, slash businessman, he became really probably the most renowned leader in the world in terms of business and sustainability. Yeah. To this day, Paul Pullman at Unilever refers to him as the, kind of as the, his mentor. Wow, so sort of a chain reaction all the way coming back from, from the book he wrote yeah. years ago. Yeah, wow. you never know. Okay, so, <laughs> um, I mean, Aaron, let's bring you in here. I mean, you've been involved with the sustainability workings of Interface for more than 10 years now, or around about 10 years. Um, I guess the first question I had was, because I haven't met you before, but I've met many others within the Interface team, um, sustainability team. How many people are in the Interface team? Because it obviously does so much work around sustainability. Is there just a few of you? One would expect there's a, a lot of you. Oh, it's a good question. But I, I want to start with, um, I want to start with just saying related to Paul and Interface and how we know each other. It's fair to say that Paul's book and his ideas transformed our company. Um, it's an absolute understatement to say that he's had an influence on Interface. Um, the book, the inspiration that he provided to our founder made a revolutionary change in his mind, but his ideas, Paul's ideas, really provided the framework for our business to implement it. So we're just so excited that we've had a 25-year-plus you know, relationship with mm -hmm. Paul. And and I just wanted to acknowledge the impact that he's had on Interface. And so, you know, over 23 years, it has evolved to this, like, sustainability powerhouse. Mm -hmm. And we're only about 5,000 people globally, and our sustainability team is sub-10 people. But here's the transformation that really happened, and here's how you do it as a business. Um, our sustainability team doesn't do all the work. So 23 years ago when we started down this path, we had no sustainability staff. 
we had our salespeople, our office teams, and the manufacturing employees. And when we started talking about sustainability, people got into leadership positions because they became really excited. Mm. So people started volunteering. They became sustainability ambassadors. Then we started making sustainability part of their job. So I count the fact that we have about 5,000 people in this company around the world that are focused on sustainability. So it's actually a pretty big team. Wow. Okay, interesting. And then obviously the strategy, um, Climate Take Back, which is kind of uh, the, the transition on from Mission Zero, which was around 20 years ago now. I won't let you know how old I was back, back then when that <laughs> launched. But um, So, I mean, yeah, specifically Climate Take Back is... It's, it's, taking the goals I mean the goals now seem just as audacious perhaps if, if if not more audacious than the goals that were initially set back in the days of Mission Zero you've you, the four key commitments I've got listed here of you'll bring carbon home and reverse climate change create supply chains that benefit all life make factories that are like forests and transform dispersed materials into products and goodness that top target of bringing carbon home and reversing climate change I mean surely that's too bold a target for interface to set for any one company to set or, or is that the point with, with, with this plan i mean absolutely it's time i mean as a company who's been focused on sustainability for 23 years um you know we've made some good progress in reducing our impacts but look at what's happened to the world in the last 23 years mm. and and i mean we simply have to accelerate what we're doing we have to challenge ourselves to do better not just interface, not just the business community, but everyone. So about a year and a half ago, you know, interface found itself at a place where we had gotten really close to achieving some of those targets we sent we set for mission zero 23 years ago. You know, we've done loads to reduce waste in the business, 91% reductions. We've reduced our greenhouse gas emissions 92%. 85% of the energy we use around the world comes from renewable sources. So we've done loads to sort of do less bad, but we really found ourselves at a place where we said we need to sort of set the next bar. Mm. And we spent a bit of time talking to our employees and getting their input around what sort of company and mission they wanted us to create. And then we reached back out to some of our advisors like Paul who've been engaged with us for the last 20 years. And we asked them, where do you think we should go? What do you want that to look like? And not surprisingly, that coincided with a lot of thinking that Paul had been doing on how would we map out a solution to reverse global warming? What might that plan look like? So our work is very much tied in the sense that I think we have a very similar ambition. We're trying to very tactically create a planet interface to achieve exactly what Paul's talking about, mm. which is drawdown. We call it climate take back. We've developed these you know, four simple ways that we're gonna do it in a business because you've gotta break it down and make a simple framework for employees. But we're aligned in sort of saying it's really time to set the next target on climate change. Mm. And that is about reversing. Mm. And that's the ambition we all need to have. Mm. Okay, and you're around about, I think, one year in now from the launch of Climate Take Back. I mean, how's that first being year, first year been? Is it? I mean, thrown up any particular challenges or opportunities or um, anything surprised you? I mean, what's nice is that the reaction to us standing up saying we have an ambition to reverse global warming has been really great. Um, in that, you know, we haven't been laughed at or mocked, um, and people know that we're serious about it. 
So two things that have been really great. The first is that we set an innovation challenge for our organization to take this idea of reversing global warming and apply it to our business. And we challenged them, create a carpet tile that actually goes beyond just reducing carbon or carbon neutral and actively stores CO2. Mm -hmm. Do something that takes it to that next level. And they were able to do it. They launched a concept carpet tile at Clark and Well Design Week earlier this month yeah. um, that we call Proof Positive. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, that's a year in really interesting to show what's possible. If we had not named the ambition of reversing global warming and said to our innovation team, translate it, we'd still be talking about the carbon footprint of our products. Mm. So, uh, so it's a, a really great sort of one year in exciting example. The second is uh, we reached out to climate leaders around the world and said, we want your feedback on this framework and this plan. And we got some really interesting responses about what they think is possible. But the overwhelming summary from that is that folks are optimistic. Mm. They think it's possible to tackle this large challenge of climate change. And we just need to simply be talking about it more. And mm. we need to say that we're optimistic. Mm. And, you know, Paul's incredibly optimistic. The work that Drawdown has done to show people what's possible, I think, is revolutionary. Yeah. Uh, well, let's bring you in, Paul, um, back to the, from the company on a mission to a man on a mission, I guess. Um, you've been sitting there, there patiently. I mean, it would be a sin not to get you involved in the discussion about progression in the world of sustainable business. Um, I learned a lot more about my mouth and shout, actually. <laughs> I love listening to Aaron. <laughs> um, but, but, I mean, yeah, um, being the, the, the professional journalist that I am, I, before any interview or anything like this, I will have a look around at you, your LinkedIn profiles and your career history and find out a bit more about you. And, um, yeah, Paul, I must say, I've not come across anyone with a more fascinating or just downright amazing um, career and life background as yourself. Um, yeah, I didn't know how to introduce you to our listeners. I listed a few um, things you've done and then thought, well, I can't leave that out, I can't leave that out. So I'll power through some of the highlights I noticed. You, I mean, your career goes back all the way through to the you know, early 1960s. You founded um, one of the first natural food companies in the US um, that relied solely on sustainable agricultural methods. Um, on that kind of founding businesses front, you founded an um, uh, energy company focused on low-cost solar based on green chemistry and biomimicry back in 2009. Um, but in 1965, you worked with Martin Luther King Jr.'s um, staff out in Alabama as a press coordinator. Um, you were also at one point a photographer and um, for the Congress of Racial Equality, where I was shocked to hear that story about the Ku Klux Klan, where you actually ended up out in Mississippi being seized and assaulted by, by Klan members, which was um, I couldn't believe. But um, yeah, lucky escape due to FBI surveillance and intervention. Um, so I've got to turn the page on this list of things that have happened in your life. Um, so you've undertaken humanitarian treks, you've served on the board of many environmental organisations, Centre for Plant Conservation, Trust for Public Land, Friends of the Earth, um, and appeared on a number of well-known TV programmes out in the US. Um, the Today Show, Larry King, um, your articles are featured in numerous newspapers, um, and of course you've become a prominent speaker on climate issues. And now you're on the ED podcast to round it all off. So um, there you go. I mean, what does it feel like to you when you hear all of that back? Um, as someone that's really kind of um, dedicated your life to environmental sustainability and the changing relationship between business and the environment, I mean, 
must be amazing to look back and have a career as illustrious and successful as that. You know, there was one time when in the, an event in, in Colorado where somebody actually read the whole CV. <laughs> that was close. And, 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 and somebody, and I, I stood up there and I said, I heard that too. I said, it sounds like I need to get involved with a 12-step program. I mean, my career is really about learning. And so it shows on papers doing but from my point of view, it's about learning uh, because that's, I'm just a curious person mm. and that's a great uh, attribute to have if you're going to be a journalist like yourself, mm. which is like, really? Why? How? When? What? You know, no, it's going into something without thinking you know, but actually understanding that you don't know. Mm. And for me, climate was very much about that, which I've been kind of, I became familiar with it in the 70s at Stanford Research Institute. My co-author of another book, Peter Schwartz, just schooled me in it, 1975, I think. And um, <clears throat> the physics, the chemistry, the biophysics was evident then and is true now as it was then. We knew exactly the mechanism, um, the sources of emissions, and basically what would happen if they continued to grow. Uh, and during that time, from 75 on, I certainly was involved with environmental organizations, I wrote about the environment and so forth, but always sort of, and, and, and certainly spoke to it, but I kept a sort of one eye open watching the climate movement, the climate authors, the climate experts, and, and just sort of fascinated to see what they said and, and what the public response was, and, but not thinking I, I was an expert or knew enough sufficiently to actually enter the fray. Um, and that began to change in the 2000s when I just began to think that we were sort of going off on this. And what I mean by that is not the science. The science is extraordinary. The IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, is probably the most uh, prodigious and magnificent science achievement human humanity has ever undertaken. Um, collaborative. There is no such thing as consensus-based science, by the way. The science is evidentiary, but nevertheless, the reports are consensus-based. Um, but the communication from science has been, uh, at, at best, inept, um, because basically it's emphasized the impact of climate, which is what the IPCC does. What is the impact now and going forward, predictively? And that impact has involved basically a sense of threat, a sense of gloom, a sense of fear, a sense of ominousness. And the media has been all too free to take that and then a hyperbole, you know, add hyperbole and big headlines and scary imagery and to basically um, uh, uh, exaggerate it in some way, although it's based on good science. And then at the same time, uh, individuals have been pondering what to do and who am I and what's my role in this. And so they get two messages. One is you're the cause, your car, your house, your life, etc. You know, don't fly across the Atlantic, you know. You only get a half a trip per lifetime sort of thing for your carbon footprint. And the other thing is these are things you can do. And literally, if you look at the things on the... On, and I Googled it this morning just to see what it was like in the UK as opposed to the US. And it's pretty much the same list of things like, you know, eat smart, um, uh, consume less, move closer to work, put a power strip in your entertainment center, uh, you know, things like this, which make people feel really both guilty and, and, 
in the sense that like, well, yeah, but if I do all these things, if I could move closer to work, for example, even if I could afford it, um, it won't really mount up enough to actually address the problem at hand, given the enormity of the, uh, of the way it's presented. Mm -hmm. And so people start to feel guilt or shame or, you know, and, and you, co you combine that, you, know, you combine the, the news that we're in big, big trouble and the trouble is getting worse faster. Mm -hmm. And with the, with the idea of sort of helplessness to disempowerment on an individual level, and what you have is a recipe for indifference, numbness, uh, depression, which is really suppressed anger uh, at, at being born at this time, or, or having a shortened horizon in terms of the possibilities of being fa having a family or children or, or looking forward to the future. And, and basically that's what's happened, certainly in the United States, and it's caused divisiveness, and it's polarized the issue and made climate seem like um, something you just want to forget about because there's nothing you can do. Yeah. And so Drawdown really was the opposite of that. I, that's why I, I, I took it on because I feel like all during this time, no one, no institution, no university, no entity had actually mapped, measured, and modeled the hundred most substantive solutions to global warming. Yeah, and this is Project Drawdown. Um, and yeah. I mean, um, there may be some that are uninitiated on this, listeners that haven't heard of it before. So let's start with the basics on that. I mean, you just launched the release of the book, I think back in April of this year. April, but yeah. what, is, um, the, what is Project Drawdown? How does it apply to this conversation of sustainable business? Project Drawdown was to do that, to map, measure, model the 100 most substantive solutions because okay. it had not been done. Uh, but we felt at the outset that in order to have credibility, we need to be a collaboration of many people from many countries and many disciplines coming together to do that. So it wasn't just a little NGO, a little nonprofit, you know, sort of holding up a flag and saying, oh, we have the answer. We don't say we have the answer. What we say is, this is what we, the bigger we know, because all our data came from either peer-reviewed science on the carbon side or came from uh, internationally respected institutions, the International Energy Agency, the IPCC itself, um, the WHO, the World Bank, uh, FAO, uh, I can just keep going. So our data is not our data, it's our, in the bigger sense, data that we respect and acknowledge and we put it together in a new way to reflect back to the world what it knows and is doing. So the solutions we modeled are all in place, they're all in practice, they're all scaling. This isn't a book about what we could do or just think we can you know, make hydrogen from coal with carbon capture systems and power our cars. I mean, that's just fantasy. This is about things we are doing and know how to do. And so it's, it, and it's, so it's very grounded in science-based. So I think what's happened is when people see the book or the list of solutions and the descriptions thereof, they get a sense that actually it is possible to reverse global warming. Mm. And, and it is. And it's possible given what we know as opposed to you know, silver bullets or pie in the sky or mm. fantasy projections of certain technologies. And how did you come how did you land on that one list of 100 solutions was it based on return on investment based on current level of kind of scale or? carbon carbon impact the, the scaling i mean the listing is all ranked by carbon impact either there's only two things you can do about global warming you can either stop putting greenhouse gases up there by efficiency conservation or just cessation or re substituting renewable for mm. uh, carbon-based fuels or 
you can bring it back home, which is what Aaron's talking about, which the interface is doing, the climate take back. In other words, bring it back down. Mm -hmm. And it comes down every year anyway. This idea that somehow drawdown is like, a, or somebody said this is overly ambitious. <laughs> is it ambitious to save civilization? I mean, but I mean, <laughs> please, <laughs> you're overreaching. <laughs> and, but actually, if you look at NASA simulations of carbon emissions and sequestration, every year we draw down 6 to 7 ppm of CO2. So it goes up and down. That's why you see sort of ratcheted line on the famous Keeling curve from the Monolore mm. Observatory in Hawaii, which is the longest single study of CO2 emissions in the atmosphere. It goes up and down, up and down, up and down. The problem is it goes a little bit more up every year than it goes down. Mm. And so drawdown is simply having that worm turn so that human anthropogenic emissions caused by fossil fuel combustion and land use, or misuse, I should say, um, actually uh, are lower, you know, than the actual rate of sequestration or drawdown of carbon into the land and oceans. Mm. And um, I guess one question that's come to me here while we've been discussing this, and it's probably a question you've been asked thousands of times since you've written this, this book and come up with these solutions, but is there one on that list that really stands out and fascinates you, one that perhaps potentially maybe might surprise listeners to hear that it's actually a very, very crucial solution in this, in this fight against climate change? Well, it really depends on the listener or the person, mm. because different people have different surprises. I think that the main surprise, first of all, we were surprised as a staff, we were surprised at the top 10, 20 solutions, period. Okay. We did not see it coming. Why? Um, because I think we are we're just as influenced by everybody else by what we hear. And what we hear from the experts in the field and from um, IPCC and from COP21, COP22, from spokespeople, is that basically solar, solar, wind, solar, solar, wind, EV stories, don't cut trees and stop eating so much meat. And that if we do that, we'll have a hall pass to the 22nd century, everything will be cool. And, and that is the scientific howler. Uh, and those solutions are crucial, absolutely crucial, to reversing climate change. So I'm not trying to diminish them so much, is that there's been a tendency to kind of um, abbreviate the solutions or the range of solutions. And so one of the things that surprised us was really the ranking and things like silver pasture and educating girls and refrigerant management showed up and we were like, whoa, and the top ten. And solar was not in the top five. And, uh, what, was so, your, what was your top five? Uh, the top five is refrigerant management is the top one, which is HFCs, hydrofluorocarbons. Wow. Yeah, they're, they're five to nine thousand times more powerful in, in global warming potential, and they're just being emitted carelessly all the time. Five billion pounds a year just in the United States alone, hmm. uh, more in India and China. And, um, and number two is uh, onshore wind, which wasn't so much of a surprise and so forth. Um, if you combine that with offshore wind and onshore wind, that, that would have been the number one solution. Mm. But we separate them because we modeled the finances as well. And the financial model for on and offshore is very, very different. It's much more expensive to place uh, wind turbines offshore mm. than it is onshore, uh, understandably. Um, and the number third, the third solution was reduced food waste. Yeah. Again, like, what? <laughs> yeah. And when we actually looked at the 
at the numbers and, and, and broke it down, the logic was impeccable, but we didn't even model methane emissions from food that's thrown away in landfill. You add that, I don't know where it would go because we didn't do that because we just simply could not find the data that we could you know, rely upon because you know, landfills all over the world and how much food, we just couldn't find the data, mm. so that's not in there. The number four solution is a plant-rich diet, which is a diet where the northern over-consuming countries of meat protein and protein as a whole uh, uh, reduce that protein to 50 grams a day instead of 100 grams, which is a healthy level of protein intake unless you're a super athlete. And, um, and then the rest of the world, actually, where they are malnourished, where they do not have sufficient caloric or protein intake, is increased mm. to 2,500 calories and 50 grams. And those combine together. Uh, and, and an infusion of plant-based protein as well, but not necessarily vegan, vegetarian, that's your choice. Mm. Um, and it's certainly optional on the vegetarian side or the vegan side if you wish. But those together still are the number four solution. Mm. And, uh, wow. Uh, Aaron, apologies. I, I realize I've been sitting here listening right. before for 10, 10, 15 minutes there. But I mean, have you read the book? What do you make of the, this list of 100? Did it surprise Interface in any way? Oh, yes. So I have read the book. Um, I mean, I think there's two two things that I love about it. The first is that it gives people a reason to believe it's possible. Mm. And I think we really need that right now. So aside from sort of the solutions and digging deep, the first thing to me is I think it's very different and a really interesting entry into the climate conversation, which is I think people need a reason to believe. Mm. And I think more people, in particular more business leaders, need to stand up and say, actually, it's possible. So if you are a CEO, here's the interesting thing about Drawdown for you. Um, you should be looking at that saying, is there anything in my business that I can do on this list? Is there business opportunity for us on this list? Mm. I mean, is it a bit of a map, right? And so I think, you know... We were really interested, as I'm sure everyone who reads the book is, because just like Paul and just like others, um, as somebody who's been working in sustainable business, we typically think about things like get more renewable energy into our system, mm. try to do more recycling, waste less. But I don't know that we've ever challenged ourselves at Interface to say, what's our role in helping educate more girls? And as we've made the transition from thinking about sustainability as just reducing the impact of our business, mm. which is kind of, you know, our thinking on that 23 years ago, just do less bad. As we've sort of evolved our approach as a business and are really challenging ourselves to say maybe the next level of sustainable business is how we can become an instrument for positive change. This provides a really interesting window to look at and say, if we are going to focus on reversing global warming as a business, sure, it's about reducing the impacts of the business and it's about using carbon as a resource. But maybe it is also about asking ourselves, how do we create business models that help educate girls? Hmm. How do we create business models that incorporate some of these ideas? Yeah. So that, and I mean, I would say it's visually stunning. So everyone that I've given the book to, um, and I've given out a lot of books, uh, really says it's a nice balance of sort of arresting photography that really kind of makes you stop and think. Hmm. Have you heard that? I mean, I think that yeah. was a good... We've heard that. There was a, there was a great tweet where a person said, 
I heard about the book, bought the book, got the book, did not expect a, such a beautiful book. Yep. <laughs> and so it showed like a little vine, you know, leaping through the book. Like, <laughs> so That's cool. Do you know, I've got a confession, which is I haven't seen it, I haven't read it. Um, I requested it after realizing you were going to be on the show. Um, and it's still, it's, I'm still awaiting it in the post. I think it's come all the way over from America, so you can blame our postal yeah, service. You can blame, but I you can can't wait to have it in the UK. <laughs> yeah. Please tell them, publish the book. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, I mean, we've managed to get through almost how far are we in? About almost 30 minutes of discussion here um, with two Americans about climate change and sustainable business without mentioning. Um, the geopolitical uh, backdrop <laughs> that's coming, you know what's coming. Um, Here it comes. I mean, it has been capped off by obviously Donald Trump's withdrawal from the Paris Agreement um, last month, withdrawing from that historic agreement, um, which has, you know, that was developed to support some of these plans and ideas we're talking about here at the moment. Um, I was going to ask you for your initial views, but as I say, on my way up, I was having a look at your Twitter profiles and things and look back to that date when it happened and um, was able to kind of um, gauge what you, what you both thought. And um, I mean, Erin, you simply tweeted that you were still optimistic and still committed and you retweeted a couple of tweets, including one from We Mean Business, which said, it now falls on the rest of us to work together harder than ever to make the Paris Agreement a reality, hashtag unstoppable. Um, Paul, I suppose you were a little bit more direct about um, the US president because you tweeted, Trump has the moral weight of a lentil. <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, I love lentils. <laughs> That's what said. It's, uh, you know, you're, giving, you're giving legumes a bad reputation. Exactly. <laughs> I suppose so, so. Slightly different approaches on social media, but I guess we're ultimately falling on the same message because you did say that the result is the opposite of his intention, and that the world is galvanised. So, I mean, do you, do you think that um, businesses have actually moved well ahead of policy or ahead enough of, of policy when it comes to climate change? Are we in the driving seat, and can we see Trump's withdrawal therefore as negligible or even in a kind of positive light to galvanise a movement? Well, I think we have to see everything. Um, in terms of, he didn't withdraw because he can't. Mm. He can only say he would. Mm. And that's four years from now. Mm. And I, no one thinks he'll be president then. So let's be real about what he can and can't do. Mm. What he says is oftentimes mistaken. And so he made a mistake then. Mm. And number two, um, everything he'd done since the day he got into office was about accelerating the withdrawal in terms of practice. That is to say, by you know, um, moving, removing regulations in terms of clean air and accelerating the exploitation of fossil fuel. Um, so the fact that he withdrew was like you know, not su a surprise. Third, we play into his hands when we like hang on every word. Who gives a hoot? I mean, basically, the playbook for uh, fascism is to permeate the minds of all the voters. Uh, every day, so it's like an infection. And that's what Mussolini did, that's what Hitler did, that's what other people who don't know, they're, they're, they're basically tyrannical. But this is a tyranny. Mm. Uh, it has nothing to do with actually democratic or republic principles, and they're being ignored. Mm. And so, but to me, his word doesn't really count because the federal government has never been the U.S. federal government, has never been a leader mm. with respect to climate change. It's tried, by the way, on the executive branch twice with Obama and Clinton and was turned out flat by Congress. So the fact that it, the executive office does not is not really news in my neighborhood. Mm. Um, and, the, and the thing is that really 
I don't know of a company or business in the world, and Aaron and I do know many of them and converse with them on a first-name basis with CEOs and practitioners and so forth. I don't know one company of any consequence that has changed what they're going to do one iota because of this president. I mean, they know he's a comer and a goner. Mm. And they're yeah. looking out. This is about 5, 10, 20 years. No corporation worth its salt is going to change what it does on a dime because somebody was elected who is ignorant of the science mm. and basically bought and paid for by fossil fuel industry. Mm. And in fact, what's been great is I think he's strengthened resolve and actually frustrated business leaders in the U.S. in particular to the point where they might move faster sooner. I mean, I, I wrote a blog about this this week, and I actually think, you know, I, I don't think I have rose-colored glasses. He, he may be causing us to do things faster in spite of the ridiculous position he's taken. Yeah. Um, so, if you know, I, I, lo I love to see those headlines of he might be the best thing for climate change in the U.S. because he's strengthened the resolve of people to say, I'm just going to ignore this. It's not relevant. Hmm. We've got to go. We've got to move. The progressive movement in the United States oftentimes sort of becomes somnolent when they have an enlightened progressive president. And I think that would have happened had Hillary Clinton been elected. And so I call <clears throat> Mr. Trump two things, either President Legume, which goes back to my mental <laughs> comment, or, or the Great Awakener, because he really has awoken the whole country. Hmm. And uh, awoken, is that a word? I don't think so. Awakened? Awakened? awakened. I don't know. Yeah. Oh gosh, English major. <laughs> <laughs> D minus. <laughs> we can edit that out. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, this reminds me, we, we recently were at an event where Poland was speaking and he said so, 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 something so similar to that about businesses are now in the driving seat um, and we have to be in the driving seat in this era of short-sighted politics. It's time for long-termism. Yeah to prevail. Erin, um, I wanted to ask you about um, one of the ways that businesses are taking the driving seat on climate action, including Interface, which is through coalitions and, and frameworks and collaborative partnerships such as RE100, which I think Interface are a part of, things like science-based targets now. Um, how important are these frameworks in ensuring that um, everyone is, is pulling in the right direction? I mean, I think they're going to be crucial right now. And if you look at it, they've always been a really important part, I think, of helping sustainable businesses really accelerate because it's been that ability for other sustainable businesses to connect with their peers, to learn, to do things together that helps us all go you know, further faster. Mm. So I think even now they're going to be more critical because I'll tell you one interesting thing that we noticed about a year ago when when we stood up and started saying we have the ambition as a business to reverse global warming is that it felt uncomfortable. Mm. And, you know, because no one else was saying it, very few businesses were saying we, we share that ambition. There, there's still such a conversation in even the most enlightened businesses around reducing our carbon footprint. Mm. And so, you know, we have a new CEO, his name is Jay Gould, and I'm incredibly proud of the fact that coming to Interface, taking on sort of the mantle of leadership there, and being a year and a half in, he was willing to stand up in front of our oldest friends, our advisors, and our customers, and, and set this level of ambition mm -hmm. proudly. 
I mean, I know it made him uncomfortable. It made us all uncomfortable. And the point is, it shouldn't make us uncomfortable. Mm. This should be what the ambition of every business has. Because we've got to move beyond kind of the, let's reduce the impact of our products, let's reduce the carbon footprint. So what's going to help other CEOs get there or other chief sustainability officers? There is strength in numbers. Mm. So these coalitions, these ability, this ability for us to connect and be part of a broader community that shares a broader ambition, mm. I think it's going to be absolutely crucial. It shouldn't feel uncomfortable, mm. but it certainly did. Mm. And what's really great is people like Paul Pullman and people like John Elkington and people like Paul Hawken and Project Drawdown as those things become louder and start to emerge and there are more coalitions and more people having this conversation about the ambition level we need mm -hmm. has to go way beyond just reducing to reversing. The courage we need to have to do that. But also, here's the plan in the map. That's the critical part and that's the other thing that coalitions can really do. They can help take the work of Paul and Drawdown and interface and our climate take back action plan and we can share it. And so what's been really interesting to see is just to see the reaction to Drawdown. I mean, every time I talk to someone who's read the book, you start to hear that something really interesting has sprung up. Mm -hmm. So I was in Chicago a couple of weeks ago and I was talking to an organization there and they said, we're, we're thinking about developing an impact investing fund that lines up to the Drawdown categories. Or, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we launched something we call the Climate Take Back Action Plan, which mm -hmm. is this is how we're going to focus on four areas of transforming interface. And we've offered it freely to other companies. And I had a person stop me at a sustainable business conference and say, I'm going to go share this with my CEO next week. Mm -hmm. That's exactly the sort of stuff that will help us accelerate and sort of a, make us all comfortable that that ambition is okay, but then help us get to work and actually start doing it. Mm. And you mentioned, um, you know, other CEOs and galvanizing the rest of the business community. And, and, and Paul, I guess one thing that comes to my mind here in this discussion is that it's one thing that maybe strikes me as slightly concerning is that, um, I mean, we need all businesses to be pushing in the right direction. Um, but we do seem to be mentioning quite similar companies that are in that band of leaders. We have Interbase here today, fantastic leader on sustainable business. We mentioned Paul Pullman at Unilever. Here in the UK, we've got the likes of M&S and BT, but that group hasn't really changed too much. Um, that kind of sustainability leadership is it seems to be remaining in the hands of the few. I mean, what do you think about this, Paul? Do you think that, um, do you see a new wave of sustainability leaders coming through on the business front, or do we need to sort of create that wave? Uh, it, it is here, actually. It's not coming. Okay. Uh, it's just, it doesn't rise to the level of um, <clears throat> the press and the media because, you know, how many times do people talk about Bono and Madonna and Britney Spears and actually that's not what's really happening in music today. Mm -hmm. I mean, not to take away from them, their extraordinary careers and particularly uh, two of them, but, uh, <laughs> 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 but I'm just saying is that the media will tend to go to those uh, those figures, those people, those companies, you know, they're iconic, mm -hmm. you know, Interface is iconic, Paul, Unilever has made it iconic, etc., etc., Kea, you can go down the list. But we're working with one company that's buying 5,000 copies of the book and sending it to 5,000 of their suppliers with not a mandate, 
but pretty much a mandate about them uh, basically um, doing the same thing Interface is doing. So, uh, I'm not going to mention the company, but I'm just saying is that you're seeing a, a, an understanding of these companies, which is that if they can't go it alone, if they're not educating, working with, and collaborating with their supply chain, it's really like just sort of, you know, uh, spitting into the darkness, you know. I mean, it has no effect at all except to be self-congratulatory. Mm -hmm. So the companies that are taking this on and are really pushing and going way, way out of their supply chains. Those companies are smaller, they're SMEs, we don't know about them, they don't necessarily need to be known about, they don't have any ambition in that sense, they may not have a charismatic uh, uh, CEO or a person like Aaron who can really speak so you know, knowledgeably about this, but that doesn't mean they're not doing it and practicing it and benefiting from it. And I think it's important to understand that when sustainability first began to be bandied about as a term in the corporate world, it was sort of, oh, they're, they're over there, let's hire some people from, you know, whatever school and they'll take care of that. We have a business to run. And it wasn't, it was really Interface, actually, and, and that, that said, wait a minute, this is a pathway to innovation and competitive advantage. In other words, this is not a pathway to compliance or just being having you know a, a good public perception. Mm -hmm. And the same thing happens with climate take back or drawdown, which is that it's a, some of these are also ambitious. Well, reversing to you know from reducing to reversing. Actually, I think the interface is already discovering, and as other companies are and will, that actually it by making a bigger goal, it opens up the pathway to innovation and imagination. And we have to keep in mind that really 78 of the 80 uh, solutions that are modeled in Drawdown, we would want to do if there wasn't a climate scientist alive today, because they just make a better world. Mm. And um, they have so many cascading second, third, fourth, sixth, seventh order benefits, you know, that it's hard to count them all. And so this isn't really like, oh, we're going to divert our attention to the atmosphere. Actually, now we understand that regenerating the atmosphere by reversing global warming actually does so many other things that make this a better world, and a better world for business, better world for customers, better mm -hmm. world for everyone here. And so that understanding, and not only that, it's profitable. It's it's not like okay we'll do this but you know where are we going to get the money? Mm. Uh, it's the other way around. There's not a huge opportunity we're going to have to sell carpet tiles on a dead planet. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I mean, realistically, I, I think there are a lot of companies who are doing it, but to your point, they're not talking about it. Mm. Um, and, and I think there we are sort of really at the infancy of starting to see all the interesting innovative solutions that are out there and and just from our experience when we sort of raised our ambition level and cast our view differently and said we're going to move beyond this idea of thinking about how to reduce the footprint of a carpet tile to we're going to make one that sequesters carbon mm -hmm the look we had across what sorts of materials, who are the innovators we work with, how would we frame that, how do we measure the impact of that, opened up an entirely different universe, which is what you want for every single company, mm -hmm. right? I mean, that's what our innovation guys live for. Those are the things that really excite customers. And so I think, you know, Paul's right in that what business leader doesn't want 
their innovation department completely charged up, mm. completely given a vision to explore new materials and new approaches. I mean, that's kind of at the heart of driving really interesting ideas in the business. So mm. I think there's loads of companies experimenting with it. But what I said a little while ago, the discomfort associated with standing up and publicly declaring this as a goal gets back to our feeling of powerlessness. Mm. And, you know, CEOs feel really uncomfortable committing to investors. We're going to deliver what we're going to deliver over the next three quarters and we're going to solve global warming. Mm. And we just need to change that. Yeah. I wanted to ask about one particular business example which I think encapsulates a particular dilemma in this in this conversation so I'm sure you're probably both aware of one of the big business stories here in the UK that is the expansion of Heathrow Airport building a third runway um, that extension you know it's it really encapsulates that growth versus sustainability dilemma um, it's an interesting story because environmentalists have, have of course condemned it um but Heathrow itself says the expansion is needed and claims that it will be one of the greenest airports in the world in doing so I've been quite close to this story I've met the sustainability team at Heathrow I've read through their sustainability strategy and wrote a piece on it um, and we've got some well-known environmentalists including um, Tony Juniper who you might know from your friends of the Earth Days Paul um who has actually worked with Heathrow on getting this expansion right so my question to you is how should a business approach this issue of sustainability versus growth? Can expansion be a good thing environmentally or should businesses like Heathrow be putting planet over profit? I think you said it actually. Both are true. Hmm. In other words, it's, it's expanding the footprint of Heathrow, which is taking away, basically, um, from ecosystem services and, you know, around the airport you know and so at the same time there is this conversion to make it the greenest airport in the world mm. and and so both can happen at the same time and both are true the decision making process is interesting one of the things Interface is doing is making and you read it off and then we can talk about it but it actually goes to the work of uh, another advisor to Interface Janine Van Eusen, who coined the term biomimicry mm. who's making a factory like a forest and also making cities like the ecosystem that they occupy and this is this is a movement that's gaining a lot of traction conceptually and practically in the case of interface which is how do you design the built environment in such a way that when it's all done and set, when it's all said and done that actually the amount of oxygen that's being emitted, the amount of water that's being retained, the amount of biodiversity that can find basically habitat um, where uh, it was nature before and now it's a built environment actually is the same or greater than when you began. So this is a, a new way of seeing human development, human habitation, human commercial development as well um, and that is quite different than, well, Again, going back to Aaron's comment, well, we're going to do less bad, you know. I mean, making Heathrow greener is making it less bad, you know. It does nothing for the airplanes, by the way, and jet A fuel and all, all the taxis and all of the transport to and from the airport. That's, you know, another subject. But I do think that what happens when you get this conflict, which is a very, to me, a justifiable conflict, mm 
between the spreading of Heathrow and uh, occupies, I don't know how many, hundreds and hundreds of hectares, it's huge as you know, um, and the impact that that has with at the same time the responsibility it has to actually transform the whole built environment out there into something that has much less impact than it has right now. Um, is exactly the kind of conversations we want to have. Mm. But I do think that beyond that is a, is a, a way of seeing it, which I described, and which Interface is doing, make a factory like a forest, um, that actually starts to, again, reverse what we've done as opposed to reduce. Mm. You know? And this is a very important change in verbs here um, that we're talking about. And in the case of Heathrow, I don't have the data, the facts to know what to do. I do think one thing, if I was, and maybe this is being proposed already, but in fact, I would, I would say that if that's going, if it's going to expand, there has to be some restoration effort someplace and They are else. doing exactly that, yeah, through yeah, heat restoration. But not just one for one, but I mean two for one, four for one, right, in other yeah. words, so that you really are, end of the day, you do your LCA, your life cycle analysis, you say, I'm better off now than we were before. Mm. Interesting. Anything to add on that? Anna? I think, I mean, I think the Heathrow case study is really interesting because it's allowing two different arguments. You know, the first is like the, you know, the kind of traditional, what's the expectation we have around growth? And is constant growth the right framework or the right metric. And that's a really interesting conversation across business as a whole, not just talking about kind of the physical transformation or expansion of Heathrow. But, and so I think, you know, I think some of that is getting wrapped up in the broader conversation of what's happening at Heathrow. But I, I think the really powerful question is if you can accomplish or achieve an expansion like that in a way that it actually benefits the natural ecosystem. Mm. And as Paul says, provides more benefits than harms. Are you allowed to do that? And and what will it really take? I mean, the good and the bad is I don't know that we're there yet in terms of the frameworks to actually deliver on that promise. Um, what we're what we're finding in experimenting with the biomimicry organization is we've had a pilot project going on for about a year called Factory as a Forest, and it's very much about changing the ambition level of running a zero footprint factory and moving that towards can a factory campus function just like a natural ecosystem. So for 20 years we've been asking, can we have zero waste from that factory? Can we run on renewable energy? Can we have amazing safety records? Can we recycle within the factory? And now we're saying, could the factory act? Could the factory actually sequester just as much carbon as a local ecosystem? Could it filter water? Could it provide habitat and refuge? Mm. Could it enhance soil? And I think the really good news through our pilot that we're finding is there is a way to translate those ecosystem dynamics, those services, there's actually a way to translate those into building and performance metrics for a campus. It's actually possible to do it. We've done it. And there are design solutions and technologies that exist that will allow your business to achieve those. So green roofs, things like that. So when I think about this idea of 
what does it look like to expand Heathrow? The question might be, could Heathrow function? Could that expansion provide the same sorts of services as a natural ecosystem? And I understand they're doing a bit of that. Um, but I think that's kind of the question. Mm. How we develop, how we do those expansions, we probably need to greatly raise our ambition level mm. around what those things sorts of look like, mm. what those things look like. Okay. Um, so we have about five minutes left of our <laughs> chat here. Um, I've managed to plow through most of the questions that I had actually listed <laughs> down. But I thought it'd be worth um, asking you, it would be um, fair to ask you a question, because actually I... I, I put out on Twitter just before meeting you guys, was there any questions anyone okay. or any of our readers had? We've had one come in, which is good, because I only put the tweet out relatively, um, yeah, about an hour ago. Um, and um, it's from David Bent, who chaired our, one of our sustainability leaders forum um, back in January. Um, he, his question sort of ties in with the question I had to end. So I'll ask you both and see whether or not there's a kind of an answer that comes out of both questions. David Bent asked, we've now got this list of solutions what in the current configuration of social forces can we enhance to deliver rapid decarbonisation? So he's asked that, and I was going to ask, um, obviously in light of Paris pulling out of, uh, Trump pulling out of Paris, um, and many businesses, you know, still potentially moving quite slowly on climate change, while we still have a kind of, you know, lots of leaders, how important is it that the sustainability community turns to the younger generation to help them kind of um, get really involved on this topic, particularly in this era of post-truth and, and fake news. So I'm, I think there's a kind of connection between those two questions. But Paul, I mean, is there anything... I'll, that take, you... I'll take the first one. Mm. First of all, I mean, with profound respect to David, I think decarbonisation is the wrong term. It's really about how we can recarbonize. Decarbonisation is the name of the problem. We combusted fossil fuels and had really... Uh, land use practices in terms of deforestation and farming that basically emitted carbon up into the atmosphere. So the name of the game is not decarbonization, that's the name of the problem. The name of the solution is recarbonization, using it as an ally and bringing it back home. So I think that's number one. Number two, the way that uh, this has been communicated to people is primarily through impact and atmospheric temperature, that is two, two degrees centigrade. Where did that come from? Well, it rounds off easily. It's not 1.62 or 2.14. I mean, it's just arbitrary, frankly. And it's, it's as a, we can't go beyond that, otherwise we're in big trouble. That's sort of, that number means nothing to 99.999% of people in the world. It has no meaning whatsoever. In the United States, we don't even know what centigrade means. So, I mean, that's even less meaning. But even if we did, the point is that it's complete abstraction. What we have done in the climate movement <clears throat> is go through a lock, try to go through a lock back door. And that back door is science concepts. And, and what science has said and what psychologists have said is, oh my gosh, this is a, a long-term problem and the human brain is not equipped to handle that because we don't think long-term, we think in terms of short-term, we think in terms of our own survival and threats and so forth. We respond to short-term uh, as opposed to long. Therefore, we are maladapted to actually tackle or address this problem. Mm. And I would say the, it's, the upset, it's the opposite. What's maladaptive is the climate movement. That the way we solve it is go through the front door, which is a needs assessment. What do human beings need on this planet? What they need is dignified living wage jobs. 
that actually give them meaning and worth. We are the only species without full employment. Think about it. There's more work to be done now than ever before. When we look at these solutions, they're, regenerate, they're regenerative. They're regenerative solutions that regenerate place, people, jobs, communities, marine fisheries, land, forests, biodiversity, and work, meaningful work. And so basically what we have to go through is what do you need? Because then we are combining what the atmosphere needs with what a family needs in terms of security, good food, constancy in terms of stability. I mean, this is what human beings need. And, and basically to try to go and knock on, bang on the back door and say, two degrees, two degrees, is a surefire way to fail. And so, and, and I don't see these as a list of solutions. I see them as, you know, basically five million data points and 5,000 references of the world saying, you know, these are the ones that have the most impact and have scaled over 30 years in a certain way. We can achieve that point in time, draw down when greenhouse gases peak and go down on a year-to-year basis. Erin, mm. any final points to add based on oh, that? I mean, that was, uh, that was well I mean how do you follow that? <laughs> I, I, I mean, I think, I think Paul and I are agreed that it's just a very different conversation that's needed going forward. And what I would say is maybe before you can even get into the conversation, you need to believe. Mm. And, and the power of sort of speaking about the fact that we think it's possible and and taking this abstraction and making it real is a place where you know interface can't solve this certainly on our own we can't even solve the communication challenge within the business community alone on this issue but we can do what we can do which is break this down start speaking about it differently at interface Mm. to our employees to our supply chain to our customers and we can start a different conversation in a very small way and we are tiny we are 5,000 people but if I look back 23 years ago with the help of Paul and others we changed how we thought as a business we changed how we framed the problem Mm. and we were able to act and not just change interface but change others in the industry we changed the mind of our customers and we're a tiny drop in the bucket but if we can do that if we can have a different conversation about climate change, we can start there. And we'd be very proud of ourselves at the end of another 20 years to say we were part of just changing our system. Mm. Well, Paul, Erin, um, I could speak to you for hours. Um, uh, but I mean, it's a good, positive and optimistic note to end on, I guess. Um, thank you so much for your time. Hope you've enjoyed the discussion as much as I have. Been highly it's been great. Thanks for having us. And it's a lovely day in London. What are the chances? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, um, uh, Graham, Paul, I suppose, uh, given that I've just taken up an hour of your time, it's worth you um, blogging your book and letting us know where we can get it. Is it available on... It's not available from Penguin UK. I urge everybody to uh, write in, in, in uh, Penguin UK and say, why not? It's published by <laughs> Penguin US. And uh, Penguin UK says basically... Uh, well, environmental climate books don't sell, right. and and they're proving it because they're not selling it. And um, in the U.S., uh, they said the same thing, by the way. And my editor of 30 years was very reluctant to do product, very reluctant for that reason because the data was shook. And the first week, it was, it became number nine on the New York Times bestseller list, mm-hmm. the first book on the environment and our climate.
to be in the top 10 bestseller list for over 25 years in wow. the US. And so I think it's the same in the UK. We're not that different. Hmm. I mean, you had Theresa May, we had Donald Trump. I mean, you know, we're not that different as people. And I feel like there's a really good market here. And if, you're, if your listeners can please say, Penguin, Penguin, please publish the book. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, no, good message. And um, I'm sure, uh, hopefully, that it's available through Amazon and things like that. But, um, it's available through Amazon, yes. Good. Yeah. Well, there you go. Um, now then, um, just a note for our listeners then before we wrap up. Um, I believe our next episode of this podcast will be another um, special edition because Matt's going to be taking over the airwaves and bringing you um, one of his uh, chats in the green room um, with another well-known sustainability leader. I won't reveal who. Um, so stay tuned for that in a fortnight's time. Um, but until then, it's goodbye from Paul Hawking. Thank you. Goodbye from Erin Mizan. Goodbye. And goodbye from myself. Goodbye. Goodbye.